Hello, church, and welcome back to the Apostles' Mailbox, where the goal is to build up the Bride of Christ. Uh, speaking of brides, today that's what we're talking about. We're going to be discussing a wedding, and so I would like you to uh, consider, imagine with me this scenario. Uh, you've been invited to a wedding, you've made your plans, you've traveled, you show up at the venue, you walk into the church, and it's just beautiful, it is totally wonderfully decorated. Uh, you look around, you're dressed, of course, very nicely, and all the other guests are dressed in their finery. The the minister is up front, and the and the groom is up front, and the the bridesmaids and the groomsmen are coming down the aisle, and they're all, of course, just shining, they're glowing, they're full of joy, and they all look great. Little, cute little uh, flower girl comes down throwing flower petals, and the, and the little ring bearer comes with her. And, uh, and, uh, and then the music changes, right? And you look back to the back of the sanctuary, and you're just waiting for that bride to come in those doors. And as the doors open, the bride walks in, and she is decked out in grubby sweatpants and an old wrinkly t-shirt. And, and, and you, you look at her and you're like, what is going on here? And your jaw drops and everybody's jaw drops. And the, and the bride looks uh, around and notices everybody's just sort of shocked and appalled. And she goes, what? What? I went to incredible efforts to create the perfect wedding. Look around you. Doesn't the church look beautiful? Didn't you get your invitations well in advance? Hasn't everything been perfect so far? Doesn't this place look amazing? Aren't my bridesmaids' dresses like the greatest you've ever seen? Don't I have a wonderful party here? Aren't we going to have the most amazing meal later? And we're going to have a dance, and I, I booked the best DJ that you can find within 500 miles What's the big deal if I didn't have time to get up this morning and make myself up real nice? You would look at that bride and you would go, girl, you don't understand, right? The point of a wedding is not all the trappings. It's not the building. It's not the invites. It's not the meal. It's not the DJ. It's not the traditions. It's not all of those things. The point of a wedding is a bride and a groom who have pledge themselves to each other uh, to remain married for life, and they have made themselves to the best of their abilities into something desirable and appealing and good to present to each other. That's what a wedding is about. And so for a bride who considers all the other things and does such a big deal about them but neglects herself, she neglects the most important contribution that she has to make uh, to a wedding. And that's what we're going to talk about today, actually. There is a wedding that the Bible tells us is coming, and many of us in the church have forgotten the wedding. And we've forgotten the, the most important part of the wedding, and we're busy with all of these other trappings. And so today is a call, if you will, uh, to repentance, to come back and do what God has intended for us uh, to do at the very beginning. And so we're going to talk about a wedding today. Now, I want to begin with a question of who is the groom? In John chapter 3, John the Baptist says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, 
who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What John the Baptist is saying is that there is a bridegroom. There is someone to whom another one has been promised, and it was his job to prepare this other one. He is the friend of the groom, if you will. He is preparing things, but he is not the center of attention. John the Baptist has been gaining a lot of attention, calling people to repentance, but his job was not to point to himself, but to someone else. And he says, that person is now here. And that person that he's pointing at, of course, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. He is the one to whom the bride has been promised. Which leads us to the question of, who is then the bride? The bride is found in Ephesians 5, where Paul is talking to the Ephesian believers about, about marriage, actually, in a couple ways at the same time. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, that is, he might make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So, what Paul will later on in that chapter, he will clarify that although he's talking about husbands and wives, his most important topic is Christ and the church. You see, Jesus Christ gave himself up completely, even to the point of death and death on a cross, so that he could purify for himself a bride, a church, so that he could present those people pure and spotless to himself as a bride. The church is for Christ. And when we say church here, we're not talking about like the, you know, the first Christian church of your local town or the, the second Baptist church or any of those uh, little individual organizations. He's talking about all of the people who are united together in Christ with him as their head. That is the bride of Christ. It is the church universal, the church global. It is everyone who is found to be in Christ. Now, you'll note that Christ wants for himself not a dirty, ragged, um, uh, undesirable bride, but he wants a bride that is pure and spotless, without wrinkle or blemish, one who is uh, absolutely glistening in holiness. And so he said his job was to make the bride holy. Now, when we hear that, uh, we can go a couple of different ways. Uh, one, I think, lamentable thing that happens in the church is that when we hear that we need to have a pure church, instead of thinking of purity in terms of actions and righteousness and lifestyle and character, we think of purity in terms of belief. I've been doing some reading of church history over the last week, and I have been sort of, I guess not shocked, but appalled once again to be reminded that the history, much of the history of the established Christian church over the last two millennium, over the last 2,000 years, has been that of groups within the church uh, cursing and condemning each other, uh, persecuting torturing, even killing other people who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, as the Messiah. They have, uh, they have 
persecuted, and they have killed all those who would dare disagree with them on matters of doctrine. Sometimes they were what we might consider big matters of doctrine. Some you might consider a small matter of doctrine. But at the end of the day, you had people in power within a within church organizations thinking that the best way to honor the groom to make themselves pure was to root out any sort of disagreement theologically. But the Bible doesn't tell us that we should persecute and kill people who disagree with us theologically or who people who don't understand what's true. Instead, what did Christ do for those very people? Well, Jesus Christ, of course, he, he, he lives and he teaches and many around him, most around him, everybody around him didn't really get it. Even his own closest disciples didn't really get it. They didn't understand who he was, what he was doing. Uh, he told them repeatedly what was coming and they didn't understand until after he had been resurrected. Right? And so he taught, and many did not understand, and many did not believe. And eventually, many of those who rejected what he had been saying, who rejected him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, they nailed him to a Roman cross and they killed him. And what did he do? He, he hung from that cross and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prayed for the very overt and uh, murdering enemies of himself and the good news that he that he came to bring and the reconciliation, the, the repairing of the rift between God and man that he came to fix. He prayed blessing for those very same people who killed him. And he taught us, he said, uh, pray for, the, he said, to bless our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, right? He didn't call for us to take up the Inquisition and kill them. Uh, he did not uh, tell us to um, to force them to confess things on pain of exile or death. He, he modeled for us this loving your enemies and especially those who disagree. And you'll see that very early on in the church, of course, uh, the, the, the early disciples, they understood that. Uh, the very first martyr, uh, Stephen, when he, is, when he is being stoned, right, he looks to heaven, he sees Jesus, and he prays the same thing. Father, don't hold this against them, right? And so he had it, he understood it, and somewhere along the line, over the decades and over the centuries and over the millennia to come, we decided in our head that to be pure meant to eradicate every form of doctrinal disagreement uh, with, with exile, with, with persecution, with punishment, with death, but it's not what Christ had in mind. He taught us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And so it's no wonder that Europe, the, the seedbed of where much of this happened, the seedbed of where the, the Spanish Inquisition basically told people, confess Christ or die, the, the, the Europe where uh, John Calvin in his Geneva um, had, had his opponents uh, burned at the stake for not confessing Calvinism, uh, where, where the Anabaptists were mercilessly persecuted uh, and killed for uh, believing that only, only uh, grown adults who could uh, logically confess Christ uh, should be baptized or that they should be baptized as a sign of their faith. And so Christians, of course, who, who persecuted and killed each other, now uh, Europe is, is, a, is a largely godless place 
where nobody believes in Jesus Christ anymore. And I don't think it's because the gospel is not compelling, but I think it's because those who carry the name of Christ uh, were so busy trying to have purity of thought that they forgot that the point of Christ was to make a bride who is pure in love and in, in character and in action. So, in fact, if we look to Revelation at this promise of what is to come, we see this, that the wedding will come at the return of Christ. And so John writes of his revelation, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And I want you to notice this, right? The bride has made herself ready, right? The bride has a part in this. She has prepared herself. You'll notice, though, that it was granted to her to clothe herself. This is a gift. This is something that God enables in us. This is something that God calls us to. And I also want you to notice that this fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You'll note for a moment, if you look, that the, the, the righteousness of the bride, her purity, the sign of her purity, is not that she has aced the doctrinal exam, if you will. Not that she has plumbed the knowledge of knowing everything there is to, about, to know about God and his word and his Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's not that. What, what has made the bride radiant and pure is that she has been engaged. She has been covered with these righteous deeds. She does what is right and what is loving. And my friends, if every Christian in this country today in America were more concerned about clothing themselves with righteous deeds, about doing what is loving and gracious and true, then the church of Christ would be a much more holy place. But instead, the bride of Christ, who's supposed to be preparing herself for this wedding, she goes to war among herself, fighting over the color of carpet or what size of an addition to build onto the facility they meet in or the, the, uh, a certain point of doctrine or, or some power struggle between who gets to decide about the wins and the wares and the hows of ministry. And we fight amongst ourselves. And when we come to this place of collision, instead of being united together as Christ desires, we split and we fracture and we create another church or another denomination. And then we define our church, our denomination as the true pure believers. And then we think we've attained purity because we have distilled doctrine down to this uh, perfect statement that defines us as a people. But my friends, what defines us as the people of God is not our theology, but our relationship with Jesus Christ. That is who we are. And you can be wrong about a great many things and still be united to Jesus Christ. You can be wrong about a great many things and still uh, be purified and be brought into that wedding as, as a member of the bride of Christ. You can be that, but you will not become that if you confuse in your mind what it means 
to be prepared for that wedding with buildings and programs and egos and, um, and dogmas, really. And it's time for the church to repent of hating other members of the body of Christ. I want you to notice one more thing right here. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, his bride is singular, it is not plural. That is, there is only one bride of Christ. Jesus is not going to be married to a couple of churches or a couple of hundred churches or a couple thousand churches. He's going to be married to one church that is his bride, that is all who have been made righteous by the by the blood of Jesus Christ and who are united to him. And it's high time that we as a church stop tearing each other down because as we do that, we bring shame upon the name of Jesus Christ. We are brides who are standing at the door with all of our invites beautifully uh, calligraphied and our buildings very decorated and our our wedding dances planned to the T, and we haven't taken the time to clothe ourselves in righteous deeds of the saints because we think to be the bride of Christ is more about all of these other things than it is about living as the one who came to call us to a righteous God. You see, Jesus came to sanctify us. Notice this. He came to sanctify the bride he wanted to. This word means to be set apart, to be made holy, to be made special. He has cleansed us by the washing of water with the word. Right? He wants a church that is radiant. And many of us have a hard time even thinking charitably about other Christians right down the road um, who are also going to be present on that day as part of the Bride of Christ. Church, repent of your division. Repent of looking down on your brothers and sisters. Repent of putting uh, doctrine above holiness and do what is right. And the bridegroom will be pleased because on that day, the one who granted us to be able to do these very things will be uh, delighted and honored to see a bride of Christ that doesn't look like a train wreck of a bad family reunion with brothers and sisters hating and tearing down and slinging accusations at each other. This is not what Christ died for. He died for a pure and radiant bride. God bless you, church. I hope this weekend, as God's Spirit leads you into the good works that he has prepared in advance for you to walk in, that you would do them and that you would know the Father's pleasure as you clothe the bride of Christ in your own little way with these white linens of righteous deeds. God bless you, and we'll see you again here soon.